Nearly eight years after the 9-11 attacks, the memories linger, the hope prevails, the strength and courage endure, the healing continues. Good morning, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, from the mountains of Costa Rica comes a story of compassion in the aftermath of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Also today, the downtown Glee Club is getting its pipes warmed up for a special concert to commemorate the 8th anniversary of 9-11. A few of its members will join us this half hour to talk about the choir and its history. And later, camping New York City style. Honestly, I'm really traumatized by it. I don't know if I'm supposed to be, to be like, it's really inspirational. That's all coming up on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. There are four sticks from the Costa Rican rainforest buried in the graveyard of St. Paul's Chapel directly across the street from the World Trade Center site. They were sent here to help New Yorkers heal following the 9-11 attacks. Storyteller Regina Ress picks up the story. In the summer of 2002, I wanted to go somewhere green. I needed to heal. I live in Lower Manhattan, and I saw a lot on the morning of September 11th. Now, the most important thing I witnessed was the response for the people of New York and the whole world to the attack. Love is stronger than hate. Of this, I'm sure. But it was a hard year in the aftermath of that attack, and the following summer, I decided to go to Costa Rica to reconnect with the beauty of life. I wrote to my friend Gail Nystrom, an ex-Peace Corps volunteer who runs a foundation in Costa Rica, and told her I was planning to come down, She asked me if I would visit an indigenous group in the mountains and if I would bring photos of New York City and of 9-11. She said that this group, the Kabekar, knew that something terrible had happened on the planet and they wanted to know more about it so they could help. So, along with my swimsuit and flip-flops, I packed postcards of the city, the island of Manhattan, the rivers and bridges, the Twin Towers... I also carried one of those glossy coffee-table books of photos of 9-11 that had quickly appeared in our bookstores. And early one morning, five of us left the capital city, San Jose, in Gale's van. We included a few volunteers who would stay with the tribe. And we drove east over the mountains and down toward the Caribbean coast. At some point, we left the highway and headed deeper into the countryside. The road turned from pitted asphalt to gravel, and then to mud as we drove through a banana plantation, miles and miles of bananas. We stopped in what seemed the middle of nowhere, and a man appeared. This was Otilio, the cacique, the chief of the Cabaker tribe. He held the reins of a small gray horse. Well, not exactly reins, just a simple brown cord. There was a saddle. And we left the van at the side of the road, and we were all carrying things for the Kabaker, medicine and other provisions. And as I was the honored guest and the one carrying the photos of New York, Otilio helped me onto the horse, into that saddle. No easy task, as I don't really know how to ride a horse. But I got on and surrendered to the moment. We headed down a deeply rutted mud road through a green world of bananas and tropical trees. We walked for about 20 minutes until we arrived at a wide river. There was no bridge. Otilio took the rope, 
and walked the horse and me through the river to the other side, leaving us on the bank, and then he returned to guide the others as they walked through the river, the provisions high on their backs or held above their heads. And then, after crossing a green velvet meadow and through several small streams, we headed up a wet, narrow, almost vertical path. The horse picked its way up very carefully. And when the trail became too steep for the horse to carry me, Otilio helped me down, and I have to say I was relieved to have my feet on the ground again. And so we all made our way up to the top of the mountain on foot. And there, from another emerald green meadow, we had a view of that river valley and cloud-draped mountains, lindisissima. It was gorgeous. We were met by mostly women and children. The men had trekked down at three in the morning to work on the banana plantation. We greeted each other with smiles and laughter hugs, and wet and muddy, we left our shoes at the door and went into a meeting hall which Gail's volunteers had built. It was of boards and screening, with a tin roof, unlike the other buildings made of sticks and thatch. Otilio introduced me in Quebecar, and then I stood up with my postcards in my rudimentary Spanish and began to speak. Soy de Nueva York. I am from New York. Una ciudad muy grande. Con cinco zonas, five boroughs. Con rios, puentes, edificios grandes. I described the city. I showed the postcards. Eso es la isla de Manhattan, el centro de Nueva York. Eso es el río Hudson. We have many bridges. The Brooklyn Bridge, el puente de Brooklyn, the George Washington Bridge, el puente de Jorge Washington. And this is the Statue of Liberty, Estatua de Libertad. And we have many, we have many very tall buildings, rascacielos. And I showed the Empire State Building and others, and I showed them lots of pictures of the Twin Towers, Las Torres Emelas. And on September 11th, el 11 de septiembre, Las Torres se derrumbaron. The towers collapsed. Then, with Gale, I showed the book of photos of the attack. The people sat, their dark brown eyes so serious. They sat in silence and looked at the photos. They asked no questions. They just listened and looked. Then, I asked if they would like to make drawings for the children of New York. I brought with me paper and crayons, and so the women and children made sweet drawings of butterflies and flowers and rivers, their world, to bring back to mine. I gave the postcards to Otilio. He asked me about the book of photos of 9-11. Un regalo, senor, if you want it, please. It is a gift. And then we went back down the mountain, through the river, and back to San Jose, but this is not the end of the story. Some months after my visit, I received a box. In it were four sticks with red dye on them. The note inside the box said that the Quebecers had asked that they be sent to me. I emailed Gail and learned why the Quebecers had wanted to see pictures of New York. After our visit, they had talked and thought about what had happened on September 11th, all those miles and all those realities away from them. They wanted to be able to visualize it. And then, when everything was ready, 
this group of poor, poor people, they have nothing, nada, in our understanding of having nada. These people, from the generosity of their worldview and their compassionate hearts on their cloud-shrouded mountain in Costa Rica, created a three-day healing ritual for New York City and the world. A healing for the world. But that is not the end of the story. Now, I've told it often in the past seven years, but I had not found the right time or place and way to pass on those healing sticks from the ceremony. Gail suggested that perhaps the Kabakers thought I could simply take the sticks and bury them at ground zero. Well, not so simple, of course. And they needed both the proper place and the proper completion of their journey. They have found both. This past January... A group of us gathered in the Museum of Trinity Church at the head of Wall Street to assemble a rangoli, a mandala co-created by a small group of us for an environmental art exhibit. Under the direction of artist Indigo Raffle, we placed white rice and yellow peas, dried pomegranates and roses, lavender blossoms, black peppercorns, and golden frankincense onto a pattern drawn on a circular cloth. There were small mirrors and glass beads, and there were four sticks from the southeastern mountains of Costa Rica marking the four directions. And then, in May, we gathered again to ceremonially de-install the Rangoli, and after formally processing up Broadway from Trinity Church to St. Paul's, we buried the four healing sticks in a corner of the churchyard directly across the street from the World Trade Center. They now lie in sanctified ground, which on September 11, 2001, was covered in dust and ash. The healing sticks from the Quebecers forest had found their way to ground zero. Love is stronger than hate. Of this, I am very sure. Regina Rass is a storyteller from New York's Greenwich Village. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. It's hard to deny the healing power of music. Music can help to combat pain, loneliness, and even fear. The Downtown Glee Club has been doing its part to soothe and entertain audiences for more than 80 years. The group's performed everywhere from Carnegie Hall and to the White House to churches and to nursing homes. This Friday, the choir is performing a special 9-11 memorial concert at Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan. Earlier this week, I talked with choir members Jerry Osterberg, Elmer George, and Stephen Vratos about their upcoming performance and the history of their glee club. Jerry, let's start with you. How and when did the downtown glee club come about? It was founded back in 1927, and at the time there were many, many uh, male chorus groups around. And a couple of uh, people who were old friends in the Navy decided to get together and form one more. The connection was uh, Trinity Church at the time, and, and they sponsored, or they seated, if you would, the Downtown Glee Club originally. How quickly did it develop? In less than a year, uh, they had uh, probably about 125 singers 
at the Roosevelt Hotel for the first concert. And after that, they were in Carnegie Hall probably from 1929 until 1970. And then we went to Town Hall and Schimmel Hall, Trinity Church, St. Paul's Chapel. And now since 9-11, we have been at St. Peter's Church for our performances. But we still rehearse in the downtown area. Now, was the downtown Glee Club always an all-male group? Yes, it's a male chorus. Did you ever take any heat for that? Occasionally, but a male chorus is a male chorus. It's an art form. It's different music literature. Jerry, describe the sound of the downtown Glee Club, and for that matter, male choruses like it. George is all about blending. Uh, you've got four voice parts. You've got uh, first tenor, second tenor, uh, first bass, which is baritone, and second bass. And the thing is, we have 25 singers. We don't want to have 25 soloists. We want to have 25 voices that blend into one. And that's essentially what it is. And you will have a soloist from time to time where we want a soloist. But most of the time, we're just blending our voices together and making that one sound. What type of music do you generally sing? Well, we basically sing from Bach to Broadway. Great American Songbook, spirituals. We do a very eclectic selection of music. thing is, uh, not a lot of the most current popular songs have been written for male chorus. And since we don't have an in-house arranger, we have to rely on purchasing uh, published sheet music written in that arrangement. It's harder and harder to get it. How diverse is the choir? Age-wise, we run from about, I would say, maybe 20 years to... Oh, 75? 75 at least. Wow, so you are still drawing in some young folks. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Right now, I am the longest singing member in the club. This is my 40th year with them. Wow. And uh, I wasn't 10 when I started. What keeps you there? I love the sound of male choral music. People think we do barbershop. We'll do a barbershop number or two, but the rules for writing harmony for barbershop and male choruses are totally different. And one of the things about barbershop is that the second tenor is called the lead, and they always have the melody. Not true in male choral arranging. It's quite different. It's the arrangement of the chords and who has the melody. The melody will be handed from one part to another. To me, 
not to put down barbershop, but barbershop singing to me is like listening to Gilbert and Sullivan. Most of it sounds the same to my ears, where male choral singing does not. It's much more diverse. Talking about diversity, uh, George, your question before. Diversity uh, besides age, uh, very diverse in terms of race and ethnic background, if you would, and also in terms of income levels, uh, blue-collar, you know, white-collar, green-collar, you name it, in between, as opposed to the old days. In the original days, it was Wall Street bankers and lawyers. Do you audition? We do. We advertise for that. We usually get a half a dozen or so people to come down. So how would you describe that audition? Is it American Idol-esque? It's much more relaxed. <laughs> and usually someone will uh, come in, and they'll be given some music, and they'll sit down. And if they wish to ad- audition, they can either do it before or after the rehearsal. And our, our conductor, unlike most conductors, operates under the principle that people will do more work for you if you put them at ease. He has a reputation Uh, He's been a choir director since he's been 12 years old, and he doesn't want to tell tell you how long he's been a choir director. (laughs) But it's amazing how so many people have come in, and they come back because he has this way about him. I mean, you don't want to get him angry, but he, he tends to put people at ease, and especially younger male singers like that because they really feel more comfortable than with uh, someone who is a uh, a fewer, let's say. I had a pretty intense job on Wall Street at one at one time, and I had to drag myself to rehearsal because, you know, I was leaving this work behind and so forth. And uh, by the end of the night, I mean, I felt great. It just restores your energy level. Just one voice singing in the dark. Let's bring Steve Rottos into the conversation. Steve, how long have you been a member of the Downtown Glee Club? I've been with the choir, I think, since 95. So um, going on 15 years now. And uh, I am the music committee chairman. I head the committee that selects the music for the programs. And I've been doing that for wow, a bunch of years now. I'm not exactly sure how long, but it's been a while. If the guys are interested in doing any particular piece of music... They'll ask me, and um, I'll check and see if it's in the library. And if not, I will try do my due diligence and try to find some sort of male choral arrangement of it so that the uh, club can perform it. Is it difficult sometimes to find exactly what you're looking for? It's very difficult. There's not a lot of – well, comparatively speaking, I mean, most of the choral music you'll find is going to be for mixed courses. Male chorus arrangements are, are harder to find. Back in the day, they were very easy to find. There were a lot more male choruses, but um, 
they're harder to find. Although recent uh, years with the advent of these um, university uh, acapella groups and shows like Glee have seen an upswing in finding arrangements, which is a good thing. You said you have about 25 members now, but that's a big drop from where you started. Consistently in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and early 60s, we put 250 men on stage in Carnegie Hall. Now, why are there only 20-some-odd now? Who knows? There are many more things for people to do today than there was back in the 20s and 30s, et cetera, you know. And uh, we did have a conductor who used to blame Monday Night Football. I don't know if that was re- if that's really true or not, but uh, that was his contentions. But Since we rehearsed on Tuesday night. Yeah, we rehearsed on Tuesday nights. I couldn't figure that out, but... Jerry, do you have a theory? Yeah, there's a lot of things going on, I think. One, one of them is that uh, there is a lot of competition, as Elmer said. People seem to work more complicated work days these days. The old 9 to 5 schedule doesn't really uh, make it anymore. And also, you don't have as many male glee clubs in the colleges and universities. There's only a few of them left, Notre Dame being one of them. So it's mo- mainly mixed groups now. Let's talk about that 9-11 performance that you have coming up this week. The 9-11 performance will be at 10.30 on 9-11 at Trinity Church, Broadway and Wall. And we're doing uh, mostly solemn music. Two newer pieces will be featured. Uh, You Raised Me Up is one of them, which I think was written in 2002. Now, your group was formed not too far from the World Trade Center site originally, correct? Yes, it was formed in a uh, in a building that was part was next to the graveyard at St. Paul's Chapel. How would you describe the choir's relationship to the Lower Manhattan community? Well, it's quite different than it used to be. As Jerry said years ago, most of the members were brokers, insurance people from the Wall Street area. In fact, rehearsals used to start at five thirty and had to be over by seven o'clock. And the theory was at seven o'clock you could either still get a fairly early train to get home, where you could party with the boys. We interact with uh, the community in, in different ways, uh, nursing homes and assisted living. We actually rehearse at a uh, facility called St. Margaret's House, which is assisted living or nursing home, Homer, I forget which, on Fulton Street. And it's senior uh, citizen housing. Yeah. And I've always had the connection with Trinity and with St. Paul's Chapel. And frankly, uh, it's a little bit difficult to get the residential community on board sometimes because Lower Manhattan has never been considered a destination for entertainment. People tend to go midtown. I guess people are hoping that will change with the whole redevelopment of Lower Manhattan. We are hoping, indeed. Were you at all personally impacted by the 9-11 attacks as far as your membership or people involved with the group? I think we had had one rehearsal that season, which was the Tuesday, I think was before 9-11 hit, and when it happened... Obviously, we didn't have rehearsal that evening, but we were scrambling for an alternative place to uh, rehearse. And for a while, we were rehearsing at, was it St. Uh, Clemens? St. Clemens in uh, Midtown area. And then we moved to somewhat downtown, but also still not in a regular place. We did have two members. Uh, one, one was actually uh, injured uh, seriously. And uh, it took him five years before he came back to us, and uh, he still is in therapy, both physical and, and uh, mental therapy as well. And one of our member, uh, Richard? Oh, Handman. Handman. Yeah, he was. Um, he lives in Brooklyn across the river and was actually watching what was going on at uh, of the buildings and yeah. 
his child was going to school uh, nearby downtown, and uh, he he's dropped out of the club. I mean, he stays in touch. We're hoping to get him back, but I think he's waiting for his uh, kids to get a little older first. How different is a performance like the one you're about to do on 9-11 than other performances? Is there a difference, or do you go into it with the same mindset? I mean, knowing that you'll be commemorating such an event... It's totally different. I remember after the Kennedy assassination in, co- in college, uh, we did a memorial service uh, to JFK. And the type of feeling that involved that is similar to the 9-11 experience. It's absolutely, it's very solemn. And one of our most of our concerts are not solemn. Yeah, we're entertaining, but we're, we're honoring. And there's a different feel. We want to, we, we certainly want to respect, you know, give due respect by making the songs and the experiences as perfect as possible. And again, the specifics on the morning, the concert? Friday, September 11th at Trinity Church. It starts at 1030 in the morning and admission is free and we welcome all to attend the concert. Elmer, Jerry, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank Thank you, George. Jerry Osterberg, Elmer George, and Stephen Vratos are members of the Downtown Glee Club. The group's online at downtowngleeclub.org. Finally today, New York City's been called a concrete jungle, but the Parks Department's trying to show a greener side of the city through its family camping program. WFUV's Kate McGee spent a night making s'mores and swatting mosquitoes in Brooklyn. Before cars and buses, Brooklyn was filled with salt marshes. Now this one in Flatlands is one of the last in New York City. A large creek sits surrounded by seagrass. The air smells of salt. This is one of the many parks where the city's parks department hosts free family camping on weekends throughout the summer. On this night, families came from across the five boroughs and New Jersey, including John Opabor and his family. He's excited to experience nature, despite the camp's urban setting. We're in New York City, but we're still kind of looking at water, and there's all sorts of birds and plant life, etc. So I think it's actually more of a uh, diverse sort of ecosystem than people might imagine. Families must pre-register in a lottery system, since most parks have limited space. To start the evening, park rangers cook hot dogs and hamburgers. Ranger John Moylet grills. He enjoys introducing New Yorkers to nature. Most of the time, what I get from the older people are that, you know, I've lived in Brooklyn all my life and I've never known that I was here. And that's a big part of the Rangers' mission is to connect New Yorkers with the natural world. Get a bun. Guys, make sure you get your buns. After dinner, the Rangers demonstrate how to pitch a tent. So the first thing you want to do is unroll the main part of the tent and then like Ranger Jason is doing... Put your poles together, okay? You can put together all three. They come together real easy. Families have to set up tents themselves. Louis Vaccaro of Brooklyn shows me and his family how it's done. All right, now what are you doing? Now we're going to put the rod in one of the clips on the bottom. I got Oh, no, no. We're not doing that yet. That was a mistake. Okay, put this down. Let's get the other rod and go crisscross. The sun is setting as families finish pitching their tents, and the park rangers gather everyone for a nature hike. Next to the marsh lies a trail for visitors to get a closer look at the natural surroundings. It's dark out, and the trail is lined with tall seagrass on either side. It's low tide, which has emptied most of the creek. Ranger John Moylet tells campers about the birds and other wildlife that roam near the water. Right now is a good time to see uh, night herons. 
It's a great time to see egrets. It's a great time to see um, raccoons and possums. But not everyone's interested in what the natural world has to offer. Take Mona Opabor from New Jersey. As Mona walks with her three children, she tries to hide her fear from them. Honestly, I'm really traumatized by it. I don't know if I'm supposed to be, to be like, it's really inspirational, but I hate, can you walk away? I hate nature and bugs. So I love I'm, nature and bugs. That was my daughter, Omala, she's four, but um, I read about this in the paper and I thought it might be fun to do, but now that it's actually happening, I'm extremely troubled. But I want to give my children a fighting chance not to be like me. Can I have a So, yeah, sure, in a second. So I don't, a bug brushed by my head and I almost started screaming. Lucky for Mona, the group soon heads back for s'mores before bed. Six-year-old Luke Abados from Queens says this is his favorite part. How's your s'more? After s'mores, families settle into their tents for the night. The sounds of seagulls and children stirring wakes up campers around 6. Families then gather their belongings and head home. Camper Sandra Vasquez from Queens says a free program like this is vital. It's very needed, you know, especially for the low-income families that can't afford, you know, to take the kids anywhere. The Parks Department's free camping runs in all five boroughs through Labor Day. For Cityscape, I'm Kate McGee. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. Thanks for listening. 